The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, we're looking at union with Christ, and I like this theme, union with Christ, a secret to a fruitful life. And that John 15, the image here is the vine to the branch, and that in him we bear much fruit. Exactly. That's the key to the fruitful life. And that this lens of our union with Christ helps us see the right direction, ask the right questions, point us toward the right goals. It sharpens our focus on Jesus, that we might live in greater assurance of the power that we have and of the intimate oneness that we can share with Christ. Also, that we would be emboldened to attempt to live a holy life. Well, tonight and tomorrow, I want to See if we can flesh that out a little bit. We know the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We obviously can't cover nine ideas, uh, but I thought we'd talk about love, and tomorrow morning that we talk about self-control. So tonight we're looking at John 13 and his command for us to love. So John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, it helps to understand Jesus' command when we see John 13 in the context of the gospel of John. In fact, our practice, our our passage earlier this morning, John 15, these, both these tonight and this morning fall in a larger section called the final discourse. John 13 through 17 is one extended teaching session that Jesus has with his disciples right before he is arrested and crucified. These are his final hours. He knows he is leaving his disciples. And after three years of living with them, teaching them, loving them, these are like his final words. It's time to say goodbye. When I was uh, meditating on this passage, so my kids are still young. I know I've told a bunch of you, but I've got a 6, 9, 11, and 13-year-old. So they're all, they're young enough. But I imagine the day... That one day, they're going to go off to college. I can't believe, like, Dr. Steve's kids are, like, in college. Oh, my goodness. That one day, my kids are going to do that, too. Or one day, they're going to get married. One day, they're going to go off and live their own life. And I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel this question, this burden of, have I prepared them for what lies ahead? Are they ready? Will they be ready for the challenges and the problems and the fears that life will throw at them. Are they ready? What will they do when I'm not there 
with them anymore. Now, again, my kids are still young, but just thinking about it, like I got like, oh my goodness, am I doing a good job? Am I, am I teaching my kids well? And then add this to the picture that what if I knew that I had a moment to say something and it would be my last, that I would never see them again? <laughs> well, that's this moment. That's where Jesus is. These are his final words. Has he prepared them well? Are they ready for what lies ahead? In some ways, not. And yet Jesus teaches them an extended discourse, an extended lesson, 13 through 17. These many chapters that they would be prepared. There's a dark side to the situation because we know that Jesus loves these disciples. In John 13, it begins with he wanted to show them. Sorry, I keep doing. I don't know if there's a way to. Is it me? Just push it away a little bit. Hello, is that better? Okay. Jesus wanted to show them the full extent of his love. And so he washes their feet. He, show, he loves them and he wants them to know that he loves them. But he also knows that that love is not always reciprocated, right? He knows as he's washing their feet that one of them in just a few hours would betray him. He knows that. And then he also knows that despite grand claims of loyalty, that another disciple would deny him. He says three times, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. One will betray him. One will deny him. All but one will abandon him at the cross. You ever, you ever been there where someone close to you has let you down? You thought they were going to be there for you and they bailed. Or maybe even worse yet, they threw you under the bus. They stabbed you in the back. I mean, I'm wondering if we knew what Jesus knew. Instead of washing their feet, we would have like gone for the jugular. How dare you even think that? You know, and just taking Judas out. I mean, would we not have? But even that pain for Jesus is dwarfed by a greater pain to come. The cross, that Jesus would suffer the punishment of all humanity and have his own loving father turn away from him. I mean, Jesus knew that he was going to walk into a suffering greater than any human being has ever suffered. And many humans have suffered so much. And yet, would we not say there was no greater suffering than this moment? Have you ever been on the brink of something you knew was going to be like horribly painful? And you were figuratively or maybe even physically like shaking because you're like bracing yourself for the pain. You're like so like freaked out. Maybe you're going in for a root canal. <laughs> you're like just trembling. Or, I mean, hopefully no. 
You're going in for your next round of chemo. Or something. I mean, your, 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 your heart is racing. Your body is tense. Your mind is spinning. I mean, I imagine all these dimensions playing into this moment as Jesus teaches his disciples. Just a few thoughts about that. When I thought about this final discourse, that Jesus was feeling all these things, you know, I felt like Jesus seems, God seems so distant, holy, untouchable, you know, impenetrable. But in the face of Jesus, God has come near. Like thinking about this moment made me feel like this is a Jesus who's been there. This is a Jesus who knows. He knows pain and grief and fear and suffering. God has come near. We have a Jesus who understands. We have a Jesus who we can relate to, who can relate to us. The other thing that I find amazing about it, though, is Normally, when you're in this kind of a crisis, this kind of a final moment, we tend to shrink in on ourselves. We're just consumed. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be, it's going to be painful. You know, people are going to hurt me. We, we hunker down. And yet for Jesus, he's, it's exact. He just gives and gives and gives for chapters and chapters. He's just thinking about his disciples, loving them, washing their feet, caring for them. And it just makes me feel like Jesus' love is even more beautiful. It's even more amazing. Because I'm so not like that when I'm suffering, when I'm afraid, when I'm facing some crisis. And I say all that to finally say, it is in this setting that Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. It's his final instruction. And in this final discourse, two times Jesus explicitly says, this is my commandment that you love one another. He doesn't say that about it. He doesn't say it. He doesn't give three commandments. He only gives one. Repeated twice. Love one another. And I feel like Jesus is saying, wrap all this together. I'm leaving. I'm not going to be with you. The world is going to hate you the way it hated me. And I'm not going to be here to protect you anymore. And so hear me, my disciples. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to love each other. You have to love each other. How are you going to make it? How are you going to survive? Hear my command. Start with loving one another. It is a weighty command. It is a final wish before he dies command. Well, in this command, I think Jesus points us to a model. He pictures what love is supposed to look like. And he points us to a source. He tells us where this love is going to come from. The beginning, as I mentioned, of John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He takes off his outer garment, gets down on the floor, washes their feet. And then he says to the disciples, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash 
one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Meaning, he said, love as I have loved you. And he just showed them. I mean, the, their feet are still wet, crying out loud. He's saying, it is in that context, he says, now love as I have loved you. Like, I just showed you my love. I just washed your feet. How has Jesus loved them? Just quickly, a few thoughts. He loved them with humility. We all understand. I'm sure we've heard this before, right? Washing, feet washing was, I mean, even today. It's, it's a nasty thing. It's, it was reserved for the lowest of servants. And yet Jesus said, I'll wash your feet. Interesting, none of the other disciples had offered to wash anyone else's feet. It was their Lord, their teacher, who finally got up and did what only the lowest of servants did. This was not beneath Jesus. He loved with grace. Suffice it to say, none of the disciples earned a foot washing from Jesus, right? No one did anything for Jesus to be obligated to wash their feet. It was undeserved. Add to that that he washed Judas's feet. He washed the thought that he washed Judas's feet is a mysterious picture of grace. (laughs) Undeserved. And he loved with action. He wanted to show his love, and he didn't write them a song, compose a poem. I mean, he doesn't make a banner. He, in action, put on the outer, took off the outer garment, put on the towel, got down on his down on the floor, and he washed their feet. And that radical act of his foot washing was actually a picture pointing to what would happen the next day. That on the cross, he would endure even greater shame. He would show even more grace. And he would show the ultimate act and lay down his life. That's how Jesus loved his disciples. That's the model. I mean, how does that make you feel? I say, I see, see, you need to love. I won't pick on Danny this time. We'll pick uh, Trisha. Trisha, this is what you get for sitting in front. Trisha, you got to love. You know how you got to love? You got to love with humility. We're going to go send you to peel those potatoes, uh, throw out the trash. You know, after, after we have all our games, I want you to vacuum and clean everything up, okay? All right, you just take it. We take the low place. We show with grace. It's, it's one thing to love and to serve people who are, like, like appreciative and, and they've served you and, I don't know, something charming, something adorable, something, I mean, like our little babies. Think, you know, okay, okay, fine. But what about the jerk? What about the, the, the spoiled, bratty, rude, immature, domineering, arrogant, undeserved, What about that person? Go serve them, the one who would betray you. Go serve them. And then don't just talk about it. Do it in action. Go give them a ride. Buy them a meal. Go do the dishes. Go take care of the baby in the middle of the night again. It isn't always dramatic. It's mundane. 
so many times. And yet, yet, that's what Jesus says. And you know what? Even if you could do all that, that's not radical enough. The, the picture Jesus gives you, you know how you're supposed to love each other? He says, greater love has no one than this, that, that he lay down his life. Got that, Tricia? Yeah. You're going to die for these people. <laughs> die. That's how we are supposed to love. It's interesting that Jesus calls this a new command. Because is this a new command? If you go back to Leviticus, this is Moses. This is like centuries ago. Moses said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a new command. But people will point out the newness is in part perhaps the new degree, the new definition of what it means to love your neighbor. You thought loving your neighbor was like take over some dessert or something. No, 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 no. You go die for your neighbor. It is a new command in its radical measure. The extreme degree to which we are to love. That's his command. All right, ICC? Love like Jesus loved. Amen? Now, I'm guessing some of us have some reactions. Some of us are, might be feeling, are you serious? I can barely reach like average human love. I'm not even a nice person. You want me to love like Jesus? I, 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 just, I just want to get people to stop hating me. You know, like you're like this... No way. Others of you are like, okay, humble, gracious, action. I'll work on it. Got it. Yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. Okay, better do it. Group three, some of us are thinking, no thanks. Um, I don't know that I really want to even try. That's too hard. And you know, all these people, they don't deserve it anyway. I mean, and actually, I'm kind of happy the way I am. So, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm probably just going to leave tonight, go play my games, and just live the same life. I'm going to ignore it. It doesn't matter. I want to speak to each of us. Please notice that Jesus calls this a command. This isn't a suggestion. Would you please be nice to each other? This is not optional for those who claim to follow Jesus. And as I mentioned, nothing else in this final discourse before he dies does Jesus say, this is my command, love one another. It is not optional for those who may want to ignore it. For those who say, okay, I'll work on it. Love. Humble. Humble. Low place. Gracious. I'll try. Service. Mm, Okay. And quite honestly, I would probably fit in this group. Okay. 
I'm supposed to do the right thing. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I'm a pastor. Do the right thing. Okay? I'll, I'll try. But here's the problem is loving like Jesus, even on my very best of days, I don't even come close. I don't even come close. I mean, if you're going to follow this command and you look at it, you can, I think the appropriate response to seeing Jesus and hearing the command is actually group one. Whoa, oh, sorry. Whoa. Like, no way. Impossible. I mean, impossible. There's, this is ridiculous. What are you, be gracious to my enemies? You're just lucky I haven't killed them already. I mean, like, this is not possible. I think that's the appropriate response. This command should crush us. Because you see, Jesus isn't telling us to become nicer people. Jesus is pointing us to a supernatural life. He shows us an unattainable model that we might turn to a supernatural source. You see, as I love, as I have loved you, in that language is implied both a model, love as I've loved you, and a source, love as I have loved you. You have first been loved. And so the first step is, this supernatural source of receiving God's love. And for some of us, receiving God's love is a little like the honesty thing for those of us who are at the prayer seminar. I don't know that it's as easy as it sounds. For some of us, receiving God's love is hard because it's hard for us to receive love or it's hard for us to put away our pride It's hard for us to admit our need. It's hard for us to say that we need this and that we are helpless without it. And it's hard to let ourselves so unconditionally, without any basis on ourselves, say that we are so loved. But when we receive it, when we receive this love, you see, that's when the miracle begins. Again, John 13 is in the context of John 13 through 17, including the passage we saw this morning, John 15. Sorry. But did you, this is all part of one big talk. What we talked about this morning, what we're talking about tonight, is part of this one big talk in which Jesus said, now remain in me and I in you. You're like a branch of the vine. There's an organic connection. In other words, this is in the context of Jesus' own picture of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. In fact, Jesus explicitly says these things. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The Father loved me. I love you. Abide in my love. And then he says, now this is my command. Love one another. Let's put these together. As I have loved you, abide in my love. Receive my love. Have my love in you. 
Now love one another. It's what we said from 1 John. God is love. God is in you. So I command you, love. You see, there is a love, not our own, that is now in us. We love with Jesus' love. That's how we love as Jesus loved. How do you love the way Jesus loved? You don't love with, with your own. You love it because his love is in you, it is a supernatural, divine life. The Christian life is not so much imitation as much as participation. So that united to Christ, his, now, his love is now comes to us. His love is in us and his love flows through us. You see, Jesus is pointing to a whole new reality. This is not just nice people becoming nicer. This is tapping in to a divine source. Let me flesh it out a little more. This is a new command, we said. It's a new command, but it's not a new command. This is way back in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet it's another new command. It's, it is a new command in another sense. First John chapter 2 says, it is a new command, new it's a new command because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What, we, what, what Jesus is referring, John is referring to is this. When Jesus came, you know, his message was the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom, he talks about this kingdom. And John is now saying, you see, this is a new command because a new kingdom is dawning upon us. And in this new kingdom, Jesus is on the throne and he rules and reigns over his kingdom. That's why so many of Jesus' parables began. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer throwing out seed. This is a new kingdom. A new order has come in. What's one part of this new kingdom that Christ now ushers in is that God is no longer just in the temple. Jesus says, destroy this temple. I will rebuild it in three days. God is no longer just in the temple. God is no longer just at church. God is not even just beside us. In the new kingdom, he is in us. You see, in the Old Testament, God was holy, holy. Don't step on that mountain. You know, God was in the temple. You can't cross through. But now Jesus has come near, and now as he leaves, he sends his spirit, and he says, I remain in me. I am in you. God has come all the way, not even to be beside you, but to be in you. There is no more intimate place to be. He has come all the way. This is the new kingdom. Christ in you. And then John says, if that we are united to Christ, if we are united to Christ, if Christ has come all the way in, then we must love. We cannot not love. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever, does, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? 
How do you know if God's spirit is really in you? Love is the evidence. Love is not the Love is not what you do. Love love is the evidence that God is in you. It's not even your love. He is in you. This is the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know if the Spirit is in you? There is this fruit. The evidence of the Spirit, the evidence of God in you is that there's love. That's the indication that God is in you. And that's exactly what Jesus says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What is the evidence? What is the sign? What is the fruit that you love one another? That's the new kingdom. Christ in you. So what do you do? What do you do? I'm going to give you three steps. Number one, you receive his love. You abide in his love. It must begin here. Number two, we pray. We pray because we know that we cannot love on our own. It is not our love with which we will fulfill this command. We must receive and he must transform. We cannot. There is an expression of our utter dependence. And that expression of dependence looks like prayer. And then three, we don't wait for something to overwhelm you. We don't wait for some supernatural experience. We move forward in faith. We move forward in faith, believing we can fly. We can fly. Trusting and obeying that Christ will enable us to do what he has commanded. Now, there are a lot of reasons for why I think we don't. Why we don't receive God's love. Why we don't love others. We're too busy. We're too important. We're too tired. We've got three kids. We're working late. Love. I mean, there are many reasons for why. But let me give you one reason for why. Let let me explore one. I think one reason why we don't love is because we are afraid. We've been hurt. We have experienced rejection, betrayal, maybe some of us even abuse. And that has taught us to be cautious, taught us to be guarded. People can't be trusted. And when you sense anywhere in your peripheral senses like danger, danger, potential hurt, potential, you instinctively pull back because because love is risky. People get Hurt. We don't want to get hurt. And so we play it safe. You know, the interesting thing is, I think our passage points to that very thing. Because Jesus had chosen Judas. And loved Judas. Spent three years of his life serving, loving, living with Judas. And then Judas sells him out. Peter, Peter, I will never betray you. But Peter and all the other disciples, they abandoned him. I mean, he 
washes their feet, and a few hours later, they all run away. Jesus knows the risk of loving and having the love not returned. We are afraid of the risk, but for Jesus, it wasn't a risk. It was a given. He knew. He knew from the beginning what Judas would do, and yet he chose him. And yet he walked with him. And yet he washed his feet. He knew what Peter would do. He knew what all the disciples would do. And yet he washed their feet. And he taught them that night. And he loved them. And the next day he died for them. You see, this is the picture of Jesus' love for you. He didn't love you when you were strong and faithful and came to the retreat and served and he loved you when you failed. He loved you when you abandoned him. He loved you when when you betrayed him. And he washes your feet and he says, you have to receive this. You have to receive this. And then he says, now I want you to love, even if you're going to get hurt. Now, why would he do that? Why would Jesus say, I'm going to love you. I want you to love, even if you're going to get hurt. He's not trying to sabotage you. (laughs) He is not a masochist. I'm sorry, a sadist. He is not trying to hurt you. Why does he say love, even if you might get hurt? Because I think he wants three things for us. He wants us to trust him. He's saying, trust me to be your shield. Trust me to be your defender, to be your shepherd, to be your father. I will protect you. I will protect you. You love and let me protect you. Even if Jesus sometimes lets us get hurt. He says, even if I let you get hurt, you still, I want you to trust me. Trust me, even if I allow you to get hurt. And he's saying, let me be your source. Step out in faith. I know you don't have the love to do this. You're selfish. You're afraid. But I want you to obey. Because let me provide. Try to fly and let me catch you. And then third, I think, why does he command us to do this? Because he wants to invite you to greater intimacy. Because look at this. When we love at risk, we are walking Jesus' path. That's his road. And he loved not when it was safe. He loved when it was dangerous. He loved when he got hurt. And as we walk that road of loving even when we get hurt, You see, we share an experience. We walk Christ-shaped footsteps. That's his path. And being, walking that path, we fellowship with him. We, We walk with, or another way to put it is, we experience our union with him. Because this is the life he lived. We share 
that experience. This is the experience of our union with him. And so we love, even when there's risk. Well, is that possible? Is it possible? Does, does this happen? Do people do this? Uh, you know, actually, Steve and I were talking. I think there is a lot in the modern church that maybe we can't explain with human explanations. And people helping each other out, I don't know, is that supernatural divine love or is that just nice people being a little nicer? Where is the power of God to produce a supernatural life? And sometimes that could look dramatic and sometimes that could look mundane. But there's got to be pictures of a supernatural life a supernatural love coming from a supernatural source. I have a, um, there was someone at Crossroads who about a year ago attempted suicide. She tried to overdose on pills, but she she didn't succeed. Uh, But she had no family or friends in the area. She had no one to turn to. Her life was falling apart. But she had visited a community group a few months back. Didn't even know them very well. Hadn't even come to our church. Just visited this community group. But she had no one else to turn to. And so she called the leader, explained her situation, and said, you know, they tell me I shouldn't be left alone. And so this community group, they just surrounded her. They would not leave her alone. And later when I talked to her, she's, this, is, this is her story. She, she said, when I was broken and at my worst, my community group rallied around me in such a way that I am still humbled by it. Taking turns watching me since I wasn't to be left alone. My community members spent time with me, sometimes talking or praying, other times allowing me the gift of tagging along with them and their loved ones, losing myself for a time in healthy interactions. One of the things I will never forget is how a couple from my community group took me into their home and their hearts, despite the fact that this whole situation was admittedly beyond their comfort zone. Living with them for over two weeks, I was encouraged to seek God, and I truly began to heal, perhaps for the first time in my life. This was the most humbling experience I have ever had I still get misty-eyed and choked up when I talk about it. My community group and my church truly are my family, and I am so blessed to be a part of it. I am happier, healthier, and living each day with a stronger faith than ever before. I am incredibly grateful for an experience that has showed me the love and grace. Of God. You see, this is where people experience the love and grace of God. And it shakes them, it changes them. This is where people see the kingdom of God and they experience it through. A loving community. 
probably the most dramatic story or most dramatic experience I have was many years ago, I was a young seminarian in West Philadelphia. I was part of this Korean-American church in this inner-city neighborhood. February 14, 1993, one of our deacons, a 32-year-old deacon, was in the car parking lot in West Philly with his five-month-old son when two teenagers from the neighborhood pulled out a gun to carjack him, and they shot him and stole the car with the baby still in the back seat. This is February. It's winter. They find the baby 20 blocks away, abandoned in an alley. It was huge. It shook our church to the core. People were shocked. People were angry. People were grieved. People were scared. People were saying, we need to move out of this neighborhood. The two teens were eventually caught, arrested, and incarcerated. But what I remember, what I will never forget, is how the leaders of our church responded. I wasn't part of this leadership. This is first-generation Korean church. They grieved with the widow. They did not minimize that loss. But then they offered words of forgiveness to the teen. And then they publicly repented for not having loved the community. And after that, they set up a scholarship fund at the high school just a block over where the two kids, two high school kids attended. They started like this carnival-like block party thing. We called it Under the Sun. We cleared out our parking lot, like had games and hot dog and prizes and face painting for many, many years. And that birthed an after-school tutoring program from the kids in the neighborhood. This is not what normal people do when someone shoots your deacon in your parking lot. This is not what normal people do. This is the picture of God's love in us. God's love through us. So that the church would be where people experience and witness the love of God. This is where they see the kingdom of God is here. Because something that is not human love shines through. Because God has come near. Receive God's love. We start there. We look at Jesus and we keep looking at Jesus. Even here, John 13, this Jesus got on his feet, got on his floor humbly to wash your feet, and he went to the cross to die for you. This is the picture. Receive his love, as uncomfortable as it may make us at times, to humbly receive love when we know we don't deserve it. And then we pray. We pray. We recognize this is not something we can do. This is a supernatural life. We humbly depend on him. And then we don't wait. We go, step forward in faith, and even tonight, love 
one another. Let's pray. Thank you.